You're listening to World Talk Radio, where the world comes to talk. World Talk Radio. All's fair in love and war is a common, erroneous comment. What was fair about what happened in the war in 1865? We'll ask about the conduct of Sherman's troops and the Confederate troops in North Carolina with Mark Bradley, author of This Astounding Close, The Road to Bennett Place, when we return on Civil War Talk Radio. If you want to live a healthier lifestyle naturally, visit wellnow.ca, an all-Canadian quality resource. We provide the information and knowledge you need to make your best choices. Wellnow.ca gives you access to natural products and solutions, lifestyle services, and licensed health practitioners. Our free monthly newsletter delivers healthy living tips, articles, and expert opinions. Become empowered. Go to wellnow.ca today. How much time each day do you spend managing your personal or business calendar? 15 minutes, a half an hour, maybe more. Is the conference room available for next week's meeting? And how many people do you have to ask to find out? Have you ever misplaced or, worse yet, lost your day planner or handheld device? And what do you do about that missing information? Do you own or operate a salon or carpet cleaning business? How about a realty office or any one of a thousand other service-based organizations? Can your customers make their appointments even when your office is closed? If any of this sounds familiar, then Schedule Online is the solution for you. For more information, call toll-free 888-668-3355. That's 888-668-3355. Or visit us online at www.scheduleonline.com. Mission Critical. Two words that describe the data vital to every e-commerce website. If your company needs the services of an unparalleled co-location facility, you need to remember these two words. Castle Access. With Castle Access, your Internet servers will be secure in environmentally controlled data centers that offer high-speed managed Internet access and the highest standards of 24-7 customer support. For more info, visit castleaccess.com. Castle Access. We keep you online all the time. The number one source for informative talk on the World Wide Web. World Talk Radio. Interested in advertising on any of our shows? Please click the advertise link on the homepage or send an email to ads at worldtalkradio.com or you can click on the sponsor this show link on any of the show pages. Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking today with Mark Bradley, author of This Astounding Close, The Road to Bennett, story of the end of the Civil War with the surrender of Joe Johnston's army to Sherman's army in North Carolina. In our first segment, we talked about the reasons why one ought to pay attention to this uh, often overlooked campaign and looked at some of the issues in the Confederate army. I thought we'd uh, turn and talk about what what Sherman was doing uh, in this campaign. Look at the other side of the line for a minute. And Mark, most ungraciously, let me start out by asking you about what I think is a typo in your book. Um, Go right ahead. 
Okay. Uh, and, I do and admit no, I occasionally make mistakes. No, no author likes this. When you talk about Sherman's campaign from Savannah up to Greensboro, North Carolina, uh, you mentioned that it's 450 miles, and that just struck me as too far. I think I can drive that in about five hours or so, and I know I'm not going 90. And I, I oh, we, oh, okay. The the march from um, Savannah to Goldsboro. Right, I, and I, Goldsboro, not Greensboro. And I, I plugged it into MapQuest, and it says it's about 330 miles. And I wonder if the 450 figure is how far they actually marched, including all detours. Exactly. And I am actually relying on mileage figures provided in the reports of the various units that okay. uh, that served in Sherman's army. And... Um, Many of the units actually had, um, I should say, some of the units had engineers who actually used walking wheels. Mm -hmm. And obviously, um, they did not march as the crow flew. Or even go down I-95. And and go down the I-95 corridor, exactly. And there were lots of detours, and um, they ended up marching a lot farther than we would drive it today. That, That makes sense. I can see where they would have covered 450 miles in that no, that's, that's a good question, though. And uh, when I initially um, did my research, I thought, that just seems too far. But um, now that I've seen exactly what was involved in their, their marching and counter-marching, I, I can understand. Okay, well, that, that makes sense then. Well, you begin by saying there's Sherman looking at a map, and he sees Goldsboro on the map. Um, by the way, I, I've lived in North Carolina now for just a few years, and I'm trying to Remember that there is no D in Goldsboro, uh, as it is pronounced locally. Um, it's one, one of those phenomena of the the accent. Uh, do I have that right? It's Goldsboro? Uh, yeah, I think you're right, yeah. It, I, it seems to have migrated into the, the town of Wilson, which is not far from here, uh, which is often pronounced Wilson. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the D fell out of Goldsboro and became a T in Wilson. <laughs> um, that's just a, a Yankee observation for you. <laughs> Uh, well, Sherman looks at the map from Savannah up to sees where he wants to take his army in the spring of 1865. And again, what I thought was interesting in your account was how much of what follows strategically is driven not only by the desire to end the war quickly and, and, and accomplish the Union's strategic goals, but the amount of personality that gets into it, personal jealousy and desire for credit. Mm-hmm. Uh, how did... did did that seem to you an important element here? Um, I, 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 I guess uh, if you could cite an example. Well, I, I'm thinking that I mean, Sherman wants to win the war. Well, there, there are accusations that Grant, well, Sheridan's cavalry is, is an example. Oh, I see. Um, who's who's going to get credit for winning the war? In terms of, it's in terms of Sherman actually continuing the march from Goldsboro into Virginia and uh, sharing the credit for ending the war by defeating Lee. Exactly. Yeah, absolutely. That was, a, I think that was, um, you could almost say that became a matter of policy and not simply military jealousy uh, or professional jealousy. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that, that Lincoln would have shared Grant's desire for the Army of the Potomac to defeat Lee and with the help of the Army of the James, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, without Sherman's assistance, um, simply to give the Army of the Potomac the credit, um, 
so that Sherman's men couldn't just lord it over uh, the army. You, you need to have the Western men march all the way through the South and come up and end the war by beating Lee in Virginia. And they felt that um, it actually politically desirable for the Army of the Potomac to do that alone. And there's no question that Grant was only too happy to uh, begin his campaign almost two weeks before Sherman was ready to start his at Goldsboro in order to defeat Lee before Sherman could reach the Virginia border. So they're, they're certainly thinking in strategic terms, but there's a strong element of who will... Who will get the glory here? And it's a sectional element as well. It's sort of the Eastern Army versus the Western Army. And they're thinking in terms of post-war um, jealousy and contention. And that to um, actually, in addition to sectional reconciliation involving the North and the South, there's a certain amount of um, reconciliation between the East and the West. And you even see that played out in the closing days of the war when Sherman's troops do march up to Washington, D.C., and participate in the Grand Review. When they're in Richmond, Virginia, they actually uh, get into some fighting with the uh, guards who are stationed at Richmond, and the same thing happens when they reach Washington, D.C. So there's no love lost between the soldiers of the Eastern and the Western armies. No, I, I think that's it's a good observation. You certainly see that when uh, when Hooker's Corps is transferred to the West. Absolutely, uh, they they have to integrate into a, a, a different military culture and, and regional culture. And uh, and there's actually that that, that continues in Sherman's army because the two corps that accompany Hooker, the 11th and the 12th, are consolidated into the 20th Corps. And there's still a certain amount of bad blood between the 20th Corps and the three Western Corps in Sherman's army. And there's actually a little bit of, um, I guess you could say, a certain amount of uh, rowdyism that takes place in Fayetteville in March of 1865 when the 20th Corps uh, tells the Western troops in no uncertain terms, we are the Provo Guard and, and you're going to just have to keep your hands off. And uh, there's actually some, some fighting that goes on between the soldiers in Sherman's army, Eastern troops and the Western troops. Yeah. In, in a way, I suppose you can see it from the point of view of the Army of the Potomac, that having fought Lee's army for the past four years, finally they're on the verge of victory. And then if Sherman had started his campaign sooner somehow and showed up, behind Lee's army and, and cut them off from their, their supplies to the south and west and, and bagged Lee's army after the Army of the Potomac did all the work, there, there would be a certain amount of uh, unhappiness. To use one last uh, football analogy, you, you play 59 minutes of, of brutal, hard contact sport, and then a 130-pound field goal kicker comes on the field, <laughs> kicks the winning point, and uh, gets all the credit for the victory. Uh, the guys in the trenches feel, you know, they, they're the ones who really earned it. Of course, to take issue with your analogy, I'm yeah. sure Sherman's soldiers would have seen themselves as more along the lines of an 800-pound gorilla than a 130-pound <laughs> kicker. <laughs> That's a very good, uh, a very good point uh, where, where the analogy falls down. Sherman's army was just as successful, and if anything, they, they'd already had so much success that they. Yes. Uh, they, but they you're, you, Jerry, your point is well taken, though. Um, I think that um, Grant and Sheridan certainly uh, saw it in those terms, and I, I think Lincoln did as well, that uh, 
to preserve its own sense of honor and, and self-esteem. It was really um, uh, essential for the Army of the Potomac to defeat Lee's army. Now, let's talk, another thing Sherman's army is, of course, known for is the march to the sea and then the march up through the Carolinas, uh, the devastation of the South, the destruction of civilian property and military property as they went. Your book touches on that and really gives a sense of what a bleak prospect it was to be a civilian living in North Carolina in 1865, uh, regardless of which army passed over your, your farm. That's uh, right. It's not going to go very well for you, was it? Well, both armies were living off the land, and that is going to place a great deal of the burden of supplying those armies on the civilian populace. And, of course, in post-war accounts, the southern civilians do not want to remember the fact that a lot of their horses and mules and provisions we're going to the Confederate Army as well as the Union Army. But that was the unpleasant reality in, in uh, the winter of 1865, is that in order to feed both Sherman's and Johnston's armies, the civilians were having to provide um, the provender. But uh, Sherman's troops, of course, are going to be the villains because they are the ones who are the enemy. What... What's your view on, on the conduct of Sherman's troops? It, it's obviously a controversial subject. Um, do you see this as something that was justified by the, the, the needs of the war? Well, first I'll point out that their conduct uh, was what I would call, at least for the most part, and there are exceptions to this, but uh, I think I would say that it's directed severity. It's not an unlimited um, case of... Uh, pillaging and, and raping, as you would see, say, in the Thirty Years' War in Europe. Um, and I would further say that South Carolina suffered far more grievously than North Carolina because Sherman's troops regarded them as, as that state as the cradle of secession. And once they crossed the line into North Carolina, they actually restrained themselves. Now, that's not to say that there aren't some cases of outrages and atrocities, but I'm talking about the general conduct of Sherman's troops. And I think the best example of the restraint of Sherman's troops is the aftermath of Lincoln's assassination in Raleigh, North Carolina. The news has just reached Raleigh on April the 17th, 1865. Sherman's tried to keep it quiet. But word gets out nonetheless, and by the time uh, Sherman returns from his first day of negotiations with Johnston, uh, 25 miles to the west, the troops are in an uproar. But Sherman orders the troops to remain in camps, and on the morning of April the 18th, Raleigh is still intact. It did not meet the fate of Columbia, South Carolina. And to my way of thinking, that indicates that Sherman's army did exercise restraint, the I, exceptions yeah, I, to the contrary notwithstanding. I thought your account of, of what happened in Raleigh was, was, was fascinating. The, the Sherman's men reached Raleigh before, uh, before the assassination of Lincoln, and the town, the, the mayor and other local authorities want to surrender the city, 
so that it will be protected and not burned. Right. And it, it's a very near-run thing, as, as, as you tell it. Oh, yes, it is, because there happened to be um, a dozen or so Confederate troops who violated that agreement, remained in Raleigh after the Confederate rear guard had pulled out, and one of their number, who we know only as Lieutenant Walsh, fired on the advance of Sherman's army, which consisted of um, Judson Kilpatrick's cavalry division. And Kilpatrick himself was in the lead. And yes, that might have resulted in um, a far worse uh, uh, fate for Raleigh than uh, Columbia, South Carolina met on February 17, 1865, when a third of that city burned to the ground. That Lieutenant Walsh fires his pistol at the, the oncoming Union uh, officers, and then then there's a chase scene. Uh, when you write your screenplay for this, you're, you're going to have to work <laughs> this in, uh, where, where they chase him through the streets, uh, they catch him in a dead end. and uh, That's right. It, it, and what was his fate? Uh, well, um, Lieutenant Walsh was taken to a place called Lovejoy's Grove. He was summarily executed. He was hanged there for violating the agreement uh, reached by uh, Judson Kilpatrick and, and uh, General Hampton, who was the uh, Confederate commander of the cavalry. So that, that really, I mean, it was that close. That had, had they not caught him or had they chosen to react otherwise, this one individual firing a handgun could have touched off the, the burning of Raleigh. By That's the absolutely right. That's a good point. In addition to Lincoln's assassination, the um, firing of Lieutenant Walsh on the Federal advance could have caused the same conflagration. Yeah, exactly. Now, you mentioned Judson Kilpatrick was in charge of the Union cavalry there, uh, and Wade Hampton, the Confederate cavalry. Again, when you write the screenplay, here are two characters, uh, Kilpatrick and Hampton, that you definitely have to uh, include. They're, they're some colorful guys. Oh, yes. And... Um, I guess we could uh, discuss what uh, occurred at Monroe's Crossroads, which um, was a surprised attack launched by um, General Hampton and his Confederate cavalry on Kilpatrick's camp about 20 miles west of Fayetteville. And this is on the morning of March 10, 1865. And uh, Hampton's attack achieved initial success. He drove the Federals out of their camp, but these were veterans, and they gradually drove their way back into the camp and recaptured it. And um, <clears throat> Hampton was able to ride on to Fayetteville. But uh, the fight was nicknamed by the Federal Infantry uh, shirt ta uh, Kilpatrick Shirttail Skedaddle. And uh, General Hampton and uh, uh, General Kilpatrick met at the Bennett Place uh, a little over a month later, April 17, 1865, during the surrender negotiations between Sherman and Johnston, <clears throat> they began discussing their previous encounters, and they got to the subject of Monroe's crossroads, and General Hampton stood about 5'11", and Kilpatrick was about 5'5", five five on his tiptoes, and Hampton drew himself up to his full height and said, well, never, uh, no one ever drove me out of my camp, <laughs> Kilpatrick said, well, you sure got out of there in a hell of a hurry. And they said that the two men had to be separated, and uh, their parting words were that they would uh, prefer to just settle the war between themselves.
Didn't one of their subordinates propose a, a giant cavalry duel, uh, Hampton and a thousand men against Kilpatrick and fifteen hundred men? That's absolutely right. Major Rollins Lowndes had uh, brought the message from Hampton's headquarters to Kilpatrick's headquarters uh, west of Raleigh, proposing a uh, truce so that Sherman and Johnston could begin negotiations. And while Lowndes was waiting at Kilpatrick's headquarters for Sherman's reply, uh, some of Kilpatrick's staff officers began needling him. And at that point, Lowndes said, well, let's just settle this once and for all, and I'll propose this, that 1,000 of our best cavalry will face 1,500 of your best cavalry, General Kilpatrick, will be armed only with sabers, and we'll decide who's better. And Kilpatrick simply laughed and said he'd consider it. But the war ended before they could uh, they actually carry out their uh, proposal. Well, it, it's uh, a sign of uh, the depth of feeling that we sometimes, uh, especially when we read the these sort of happy versions of surrenders, uh, where everybody is friends again. Let's talk more about that in just a moment. We'll come back shortly with Mark Bradley, author of this astounding close, The Road to Bennett Place, here on Civil War Talk Radio. <laughs> 